and the environment that I was in, nobody really put any precedent. Your circle is relatively small. Then that's what you aspire to and that's your life. The reality was that I often did the thing that was in front of my nose. So if those things were bad things, then I would do them. And to be fair, I think so much of my opportunity was pure luck and timing. So you might not bring the same things other groups have. You might not have the swanky kind of careers and job titles, but you have your character and you have your integrity. I think that sometimes people spend more time preferring to be right than to be effective. It's a very simple concept, Dean. I always say it's beautifully simple. The challenge is to get people to work in a way that is different from their preference. If you can't do that, you won't change a thing. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Over the Leadership. And one of the things I said about this podcast was I want to highlight the amazing people who you don't get to hear a lot from, people who have done work behind the scenes for years. And you'll have felt that impact, but you will necessarily have known or recognized that it was them. And my guest today is one of those people that is going to come on shortly and introduce himself. And in fact, before I carry it, let me see what he says. Let me see what he says. Um, can you introduce yourself without giving me your name? Your name comes last. Tell me who you are, um, what you do, what you stand for. And then they can get that your name. Okay, so um, this is quite a difficult one. <laughs> I'll just do with my name. Let me do the my... I'll take it easy. You go for it. I'll take it easy. You. <laughs> no, no, I'll go for the easy ones first. So I, my name will be yeah. So um, yeah, so I'm I'm currently the group director for diversity, inclusion, and well-being at Sky. Um, responsible for primarily their work um, tackling racial inequity. Um, and also responsible for the £30 million of funding that Sky's put together to make that happen. Um, my career has spanned over 20 years, so getting on a bit now, um, but worked in a variety of roles globally with business, um, including people like Live Nation and Ticketmaster, but also worked within government in regeneration and housing and started my career at an organisation called the Commission for Racial Equality, which was established to tackle discrimination, promote equality of opportunity and promote good relations. So quite a varied career journey. And um, my name is David Carrigan. Easy, but easy, just, just flows. And one of the, yeah. one of the things that, uh, that really struck me about when I started to read more about you and your background, like you said, 20 plus years of career, doing amazing things in different, both private and public sector. And you were the first member of your family to complete your secondary school education. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my, my background was, was quite modest. So I went, um, I was, you have probably tell from where I'm from Birmingham. So um, come from inner city Birmingham, went to lots of different schools and um, my parents had quite modest careers, so um, you know my mum um, worked um, with social services initially. Then ended up working um, as a cleaner as she got a little bit older. And my dad was a great bloke, but he worked um, on the buses. 
um, which was you know a job that he absolutely loved and then worked in a factory doing things like night shifts so they were out quite a lot they worked lots of jobs and the focus on education wasn't really there because one that they'd never benefited from the education themselves so that obviously affects their aspirations of, of the importance of education and the environment that I was in nobody really put any precedent on things like O-levels and GCSEs you just kind of went to school endured it got a job and then if you got a job then things were were were, were, were pretty rosy so when I left school I was actually a gas engineer uh, so I did an apprenticeship as a gas engineer um, so that was my first formal job and then just by chance of meeting someone who was going to a university which I'd never heard of got exposed to that world so did night school and did A-levels at night school and eventually went to university so yeah, the first in a lot of areas within the family to do those things. And, you know, that's not because there's anything special about me. It's just the choices that, that people are, have to make given the cards they're dealt with. And also, I think a lot of it is about awareness that there is different things out there. So if your your circle is relatively small, then that's what you aspire to and that's your, your, your life. And I think if you get exposure to other things, then you start to kind of think, maybe I could do something differently. So nothing special, just, you know, a lot of different circumstances that came together to help me. Then there are times when we don't always get to pick our circumstances, but we do get to pick our choices in regards to the circumstances. Now, you've been exposed to someone who that gave you that insight into like university education, and you're like, what is that? You start to look into that. Coming from, like you said, the environment that you did and then moving into that, that's still a massive transition because you don't necessarily have that support around you. So does there was there a level of self-awareness and a mentality that was like, you know, I can do this or I can't do this, that was there real for you at that point in time? I'd like to say that it was as intentional as that. I think the reality was that I often did the thing that was in front of my nose so if those things were bad things, then I would do them. And to be fair, you know, you, you know, there were lots of things that I did as a young person that that probably weren't the right direction. Um, but it was it wasn't intentional. It was just that that was in front of my nose, and that's what I did. So I was in an environment where some of the people I started to hang out with were doing more productive things with their lives. So went that way. But it was just as easy for me to have gone the other. So. I think the only conscious choices that I had were the values that my parents gave me around, you know, not stealing uh, was a big thing for them. Sounds quite basic, but, you know, trust me, in the environment I was in, everything was stolen. So that was quite an important red line for them uh, and being honest as well. So there was there, there was nothing intentional. I, I, I purely, and I, I know that a lot of people argue against it, I think so much of my opportunity was pure luck and timing, seriously. You know, I'd love to say it was I was intentional. I decided I wanted to change my environment. I didn't think my environment was that bad at all. I, I thought my environment was good, and it was in many respects. But I had no desire to leave that. It was just the fact that every time I kind of put my head above another fence, I went, oh, that looks okay. And another fence, oh, that looks okay. And then, oh, that. And that's how my whole life has unfolded, really. So you thought if you fed your curiosity then? You you would look it. There are people who have their heads down and they're not looking above the fence and they can't see what's what's in front of them. But you seem to have that. I'm gonna look above, there's something there, let me go for it. And that was that was quite fundamental for you. And you said something around luck, which I always find interesting, especially with successful people. How much how do you make your own luck? 
in the fact that you are curious, you are open, and therefore you're inviting that in? Or do you just believe that it's just a random coincidence of events that happen? I mean, I'm not going to say that the reason I'm sitting here today is just because of luck and nothing to do with hard work. I mean, I work, I work bloody hard. But I think what I did realise quite earlier on was that 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 curiosity to to look at different things was really important. I did have a curiosity, and I think because my formal education at school was so poor, you know, I left thinking, you know, I was stupid and I couldn't do this and that. And actually the education journey I went on gave me the confidence and it, it is often about the confidence to, you know, to walk into a space that you don't feel is inclusive f for you, to have a conversation with someone about something you don't know about, to be able to put yourself in that position, to be curious, does re require a level of confidence because you're by definition insecure when you're in an environment you, you don't feel comfortable in. And I think that that you have to have an element of confidence in what you bring. So you might not bring the same things other groups have. You might not have the swanky kind of careers and job titles, and but you have your character and you have your integrity. And those are really important commodities that give you the confidence to go into a space and know your worth. So for me, I think that the natural curiosity is really important. You've got to put yourself in a position to do that. But you also need to gear yourself up for the discomfort that you're going to feel when you start looking over a fence because you're not always going to see things that you think, oh, that's me. Never works out like that. And I've spent 20 odd years in the career and I still go through that every single day. You know, when I walk into an office like Sky that's all super swanky or I get invited to kind of an event and there's politicians there or, you know, speak on a podcast with people like you. These aren't things that are in my, in my honey zone. I've learned to adapt to them and feel comfortable in them but you know would I say this is what the sort of thing I'd do every day absolutely not but you you need to be in a position to kind of kind of influence and, and have those conversations if that makes sense it does it makes effort and I think it's also quite human and great to actually hear that like you said 20 plus years you're, you're still navigating and you're still stepping into uncomfortable situations and it's not always easy you know easily think that oh after a couple of years whatever i'm doing i'm going to be around it's like no anything new it's always going to have that feeling of oh this this feels uncomfortable because it's it's brand new regardless of how many years you've been doing stuff and hearing someone like you say that i think is really really important yeah i hope so i mean i think you have to be human about these things and um i think what's difficult with any leader is to get to have the confidence to be vulnerable enough to say you don't always have the answers i mean every every person i speak to at various levels of a business will have those feelings the question is they're just not always open about them but unless you're kind of a sociopath that thinks everything you do is absolutely amazing um or you're not self-critical and i think most people who are effective i have an element of self-criticism you know the, the the balance is to make sure that you don't criticise yourself to the point where you feel that you you can't do anything. But, you know, I'm sure anyone listening, they will have that ability to go and look at what they've done with a critical arm and go, you know, I wish I'd done that differently or I wish I'd had that conversation or I wish I'd made that choice. That is perfectly normal. It happens no matter how successful you are in your career. The question is to get that balance right because you want your self-critical 
um, evaluation of yourself to be the superpower that improves you. It gives you the ability to learn from the things that don't go well and to be able to um, kind of make sure you make better decisions in the future. But you've also got to accept that if you do anything that's innovative or creative or you're shaking a tree because you're trying to achieve change, not everything will work out. There will be things that go very badly wrong and it's being able to accept that without it destroying your confidence. But if you don't worry about things going wrong and you're arrogant, then that makes you equally um, susceptible to to problems in the future. So it's just that healthy balance that I think we're all striving to have. And I don't think we ever have it totally. Sometimes we have it for a few months. Other times it will evaporate as quickly as it appears. So again, just be a bit human about it. You know, cut yourself a bit of slack. I'm curious. Um, I know you said you weren't intentional around your career path, but you went into an area in a field to do with like race, race relations. Um, and I'm thinking back like 20 plus years ago, that was a whole different environment. That was like one of the hardest areas and sectors to go into. And that's where you ended up. And obviously your career's been amazing. You've been able to do some, some amazing things there, but I'm like, of all the things to go into, why pick one of the hardest areas? Yeah, I mean, it, it was very different. I mean, you talk about it, we're talking in, in the, the 90s. And, you know, Stephen Lawrence and the kind of, the, the, the murder of Stephen Lawrence was topical, but was just going to be another case of a young black kid getting murdered and, you know, people getting away with it. That was the expectation. Um, workplaces, I mean, even my own experience, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of mixed race and I think that, that I can't even talk about some of the examples. I mean, it's, it's probably less prevalent now because of my loss of hair, but you know, walking around with a, with a, a big Afro in a very different work environment, the things that, that were tolerated and I tolerated them to be honest. And everyone, it was just the way things were, was, was, was a very different society so you know people talked openly about racism and people talked about discrimination and it was acknowledged it wasn't glossed over and I think over the past few years we've seen massive gains you know we've seen massive changes in society um the way that that race is talked about people's willingness to connect and discuss the issue um but in some cases people have felt less comfortable talking about things like racism you know what you know it, it, it still happens the stats haven't moved hugely but there's sometimes a reluctance to kind of revisit that almost like you're going back and not focusing on all the positives that have happened you know of course there've been massive changes I don't think anyone would would doubt that but there are still some things that that are persistent and you know it's really important that we don't ignore those things because they are important systemic issues you know exclusion of kids from school, experience of the black community within health, housing, education, employment. Think about every single social indicator you can think of. There is often a disparity and we can all debate and argue why those disparities exist, but they exist nonetheless. So it's important to understand what is driving those things. Uh, and sometimes those conversations seem to be less prevalent than than personally I would like to see in all that you have done so far um, I guess I'm interested to hear about what are some of the the challenges that you've had 
working both in the public sector, working with the government and then working in the private sector. What are some of the challenges that you had when it comes to having conversations around diversity, inclusion, um, belonging, equity? I think each organization is different. Different personalities, different culture and the kind of things those organizations do, whether they're commercial or government, it doesn't really matter. But I think the biggest challenge is that when you work in this space, if you do it effectively, you are essentially shaking a tree. You know, you're going in to look at what isn't working well. Having to encourage people to have a conversation about an issue that one, they may not have any personal experience in, or in some cases not be aware that there is a particular problem or nuance that that, that they're not exposed to. And then you're asking people to work in a way that is not always their preference in order to address those things. So when you look at those things in totality, the challenge is always a very difficult one. You know, it's always something you have to face into and you need the resilience to be able to have those conversations because if you shirk the difficult conversations then you achieve very little. So I think it's that that is a, a challenge no matter what sector that you are in. Um, but what I always say is it's important to to listen to and observe. You know, sometimes you'll go in and you'll see an area that doesn't seem to be working particularly well or there are disparities in data or people's experience. And you can go in, and I did this very much in my early careers, walk in, think I was the, uh, the bee's knees and look at something and go, that's broke. Why hasn't anyone fixed it? And then the genius that I was going with two feet saying oh we need to do this and that and address it and what I learned is that if you go into an organization and you see something that appears broke that appears to be low-hanging fruit and someone hasn't picked it there's a bloody good reason why they haven't picked it and actually it's the environment the politics and those things that often create the dynamics that that that, that prevent even the simplest things of being um, being, being, being fixed. So part of the challenge is to be able to work at the pace that the organization is able to tolerate and to bring the greatest group of people along with you on that journey, because all of the changes need to get broad support, broad appeal. You need to persuade people of the merits of the different approach and why you're fixing that issue in that way. Very easy to point and shout, um, but that doesn't change things. It's about persuading people on a moral, on an emotional and on an intellectual level that these changes are the right things for that organisation. So I think that's that challenge is one that, you know, you have to, you know, cut your cloth accordingly. You have to tailor how you communicate, how you work with those groups. You know, it's a very simple concept, Dean. I always say it's beautifully simple. The challenge is to get people to work in a way that is different from their preference. If you can't do that, you won't change a thing. But as a problem, it's a very simple one. It's just the mechanics of getting people to work in that way. I guess we would be able to say that. Why, why should I have to do that? Why should I have to spend time convincing people when the data's there, the research is there, the moral standpoint and argument is there? Like, shouldn't they just get this and understand it and we should just focus on actually doing the work, not have to spend so much time trying to get them to understand? I don't know. I think that I think one of the things that, and these these are my personal views on 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 the work that I do. So um, I think that sometimes people spend more time 
preferring to be right than to be effective. And in order to be effective, then you have to sometimes have the conversations that are frustrating. But if you're trying to get people to change and to do things differently, I think there is a big difference between being committed in this space, you know, saying the right things, but actually it's the actions that are more important. And to get people to change and not work in a way that is their preference is is going to be challenging. So that issue of persuasion is really important. You know, I think any any successful rights movement, and I'm talking in society now, not within businesses, but if you look at rights that have been gained for kind of um, sex equality, race equality, you know, sexual orientation, all of those rights have been driven by persuasion. I think people have appealed to people's moral and and also their their sensibilities about you know Martin Luther King we talked about this before that and Martin Luther King appealed to people as rights for black African Americans as American rights you know I think it was quite obvious when you've seen brown paper bags nailed on churches and people being refused entry because they don't match the color of the bag that it's relatively a simple concept to understand but in order to change people's approach and to get them to be part of a solution, you need to persuade people of the merits and why that is important. And I think you've seen it more recently with, you know, the kind of opportunities for, you know, same-sex marriage and protection in law for kind of gay, lesbian, bisexual people in, in law because the reality has been that you've persuaded people. That wasn't, that wasn't driven by the 5% of people who identify as you know, gay, lesbian, or bisexual in the society, it was driven because the other 95% went, yeah, yeah, why can't people get married and why can't they have rights to property when someone's died and why can't they have protection in law? And it's the same for all of these areas. It's about the persuasion. So it is massively frustrating, you know, massively frustrating sometimes that you can have the same conversations, but in order to be effective, they're just things that you just have to do. So... You know, I think that, that that's the focus. It's what is effective, um, a way of, of changing changing the narrative around that. How do you as a leader keep on expanding your your knowledge and your understanding of the topics that you're involved in? I mean, even when I look at your prior role with like that nation, which is like working across like 40 international markets, for example, that's a massive amount of cultures to be able to get your head around so to kind of implement so how do you kind of keep on learning and growing and developing um i think that's the a bit back to the, the previous question about being curious looking over a fence i think that, that there's that that saying that i loved you know the more the more i i learn the less i know and it's that awareness that there is always more to understand and i think you have to have that natural curiosity and fascination so all I do in my area is speak to as many people as possible. You know, I know the areas that I feel more comfortable in. There are also areas that I think my knowledge needs to develop um, where where I do have those conversations. So that's really important. I think also the work that I do is about partnership. So, you know, going into, you know, I look at my career. I worked as a specialist in race discrimination and the CRE. Then I went into housing and regeneration, didn't have a clue about housing and regeneration, was not aware of issues around gender, 
particular areas of disability, all of the stuff around social economic disability. I didn't have a clue about that, but by working in partnership with people that did, that's how you build your 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 knowledge and your skill set. So, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd like that. I love learning. I absolutely like a sponge for learning from different people. And I think going from different sector, you go in with a humility that you know your stuff on DNI. But what I don't know is what I have to do in a media and entertainment business or what I do within the music industry. I don't know. I've never put a show together. I don't know how to develop a, a program for content. So I have to work with people that do. And that's, I think, the magic of, of doing this work well, that there is no playbook. You can't just bring in some deck that's been used around, you know, this is unconscious bias and this is what we do around raising awareness and this is our leader. It's the, 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 pro, the mechanics are exactly the same. It's just you have to adapt them to the business. And I think that that has given me, and I think this is why I love my job, that I've learned so much from just working with some amazing, different, brilliant people in all of those sectors so i think when it comes down to how do you keep fresh it's just exposing yourself and what i do a personal thing is i expose myself to arguments i can't stand so i think one of the things that is probably one of the few strengths i have in this space is to be able to speak to someone i disagree with and disagree with them on a subject that i absolutely get lit up on but to disagree well because I've learned as much from speaking to someone whose views I ordinarily would not be inclined to listen to um, as I would be speaking to someone I agree with. And I think we've, I think that's a real a strength, but also I, I see that in society as, a, as, a, as something we've lost as a society, the ability to disagree well. How do you disagree real? Because that's, like you said, that's tough. Like you, especially when you know that subject matter and you're hearing someone give you a contrarian view, being able to stay calm and not get annoyed or frustrated or lash out which is what we see a lot of times especially played out on social media platforms like how do you disagree well part of it is to to understand the position that someone has started from so you know when i worked in cohesion uh, in government we were working with essentially two polarized sides so you've got far-right groups so british national party and people are sympathetic to that on the other side we had islamist groups who had a fundamental, completely different polarised view about the, the world. So you've got these two groups, and what you've got to do is try and create the conditions where you reduce that prejudice. And it's called contact theory, and it's something that I, I absolutely obsess with. But I think it comes to the heart of disagreeing well. And there are four conditions to contact theory that, that really are, I think, fundamentals in anything that you do in this space. So the first condition is that people share intimate beliefs. So that includes beliefs that you might not agree with, their perceptions that you might be offended by. Um, and that is really important because unless you can get to the crux of why people think the way that they do and why they believe the things that they do, you can't ever have a conversation. And sometimes people don't share those beliefs because there is a fear that, those beliefs will have some level of detriment to you. Certainly in the workplace, people aren't very open because it can get you fired. So let's be honest. You know, we see this increasingly in society with what they call this this council culture. But being able to share the beliefs is the first part. The second is that you have equal status. And this is the really difficult one because it sounds quite easy that everybody talking has equal status. 
But in many cases, conversations around DNI, you don't have equal status. So if you are talking about sex discrimination and you are a woman who has experienced sex discrimination, for a man to have a view that is seen as equal to talk about the experience of sex discrimination in that space, there is always a, a, an imbalance, you know, starting a conversation with actually as someone who was an ethnic minority, I find what you said as a white man offensive. That that That's essentially changed the dynamics around status and actually it's the most difficult one of those four conditions. But if you can meet those and actually go into those conversations with that equal status, then that helps. And then you've got um, spirit of cooperation. So you're cooperating towards a shared means or end. So it could be in an environment trying to create a decent community, in work, it could be an inclusive culture. And then the final one, the final fourth one, is being sanctioned by higher authority. And by that, I don't mean God, but someone who has authority over that environment. So it could be your employer or it could be the local authority or the community organisations. But if you meet those four dynamics, you will undoubtedly reduce prejudice. And in order to do that, you need to be able to disagree well. So understand the perspective say i agree to disagree but actually have a conversation about why people feel that way and often you'll find that the that you know if someone has a prejudicial view or one that is um blatantly discriminatory or or, or, or very negative that the arguments for why they hold that view will fall away and actually on an intellectual level you you can really unpack that so i think that disagreeing well is really important does that answer your question? Quite long. No, but it's, it's a practical. I'm giving very long answers, but these are quite complicated things. You you can give a buzzword, but what I'm trying to do is, is just illustrate. Just delve into it. Yeah, to delve into it. And that's where the difference is. I think there's so many things that are done or are said in a very surface level that make it seem so simplistic, but actually isn't. It's it's complex, and therefore it needs to be unraveled, or you have like that four step. Like process that you just kind of delivered, which makes okay now that I can, I can see, I can logically walk through that and I can apply that. And that's like, those are the things I want to hear because that's where the experience comes from. I suppose to someone who's like, yeah, I just read something and this is what it is. Like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But listening to the application and how you're kind of breaking it down for me is, is really, really good and really, really helpful. And something that you said to me earlier that kind of stayed out to me when you're talking about you moving into a role in. Yeah, you need to be the United side of things, but you necessarily know the other things, whether it's like housing or even like um, entertainment and, and all of that. And if I'm looking at you like, hey, David, you navigated to some great organizations. You are in a senior leadership position. Apart from working hard and apart from luck, what would you, what advice would you offer someone who's like, I want to get to where you kind of got to and rise to those echelons in organization you're trying to think i'm trying to think of a shorter answer for you on this one <laughs> what has helped me is to become a subject matter expert and i think that i'm very conscious that you know i have kind of if you look at the dni kind of spectrum i've got multiple kind of characteristics that would fall into lots of boxes i'm very conscious that that I think to be successful, well, no, not to be successful. I think to be effective. I think I use that term. To be effective, you you need to 
develop your expertise as a subject matter expert, not based on your lived experience, but based on your expertise. And I think that there is a very big difference between what I would consider to be inside gain from my, 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 my background and very different from what I would do in a professional environment and how you advise companies. And I think lived experience doesn't give you the ability to shape a DNI agenda. And I think that's quite a challenging statement to make. But I always use the analogy that I'm talking to you now through a laptop and a computer. I use a computer every single day. You would not put me in charge of IT infrastructure within a business. Now, I've got lived experience of it. And I know it might be quite controversial, but that's this is my personal view on that and I think with DNI that the single biggest challenge but I think thing that makes a big difference is to be fiercely objective when the thing that you are looking at you care about or is about you so there are some areas that I am very mindful that I have a very personal um, kind of affiliation towards and I am very mindful of of managing that to make sure that I don't over-index on the thing that I care about and also with people that I work with in my team that we're all aware of those kind of honey spots for us all and to be effective you have to be able to be super super objective and that's really difficult and that's why you know some some roles have not been for me in the past because I would find it impossible to be objective in some in some environments with some issues that come up around DNI and inclusion, I just know, and I think that that's probably a really important commodity I see with 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 lots of people in this profession. And then the balance to be an ad, ad, an, ad, an advocate rather than an activist. And again, that that is not about saying that people who have an activist mentality are doing things wrong. That's got nothing to do with what I'm saying at all. I think activists, and I was an activist in very much the, the earlier parts of my career but to be an advocate to change is a very different approach and it is about how do you get from a to b and it's very easy to say what the challenges are it's very easy to say where you want to be you know there are people who are much more eloquent at me and painting the picture of what a great inclusive organization is and it's really easy to say well what the challenge is or what we need to do is and you point all the problems out i see the role of good people in this profession to operate in the grey area and I think that that is the challenge is getting people to accept the problems which in some cases most people do you know the world as work has changed people accept problems like this constantly now it's not the same conversation we had 10 years ago but the disagreement always comes from the point of how do you get to the outcome because everyone wants the same outcome as well and most people are you know, it's indisputable they want more inclusive environment, more inclusive cultures, but it's how you get there. That's where the disagreement goes in and that's where the skill set. So I would say to anyone who wants to get into this area or wants to, in my view, have an impactful career is to constantly build your relationships with people who are subject matter experts in their area, build your own capability and to constantly work in partnership and collaborate. That is, I think, the recipe um, that makes things work in practice um not from a strategic level because that's relatively straightforward from an operational how do things work how do the nuts and bolts work in this business how do i get this to happen here you can't do that by sitting on the top of a hill um pontificating to 
to, to, to the masses. You need to get your hands dirty. Was there a particular experience or there's something that happened that caused you to shift from an activist to advocate? I think that what happened for me was a realization that, you know, I always wanted to affect change. I always wanted to be impactful. I didn't want to window dress. I didn't want to kind of, you know, DNI, DNA is in everything we do and it's, you know, like golden threads and blah, 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 blah. And I, I didn't want to be someone that, that, that worked in that way. And when I left the Commission for Racial Equality, I was very much in that, that, that mold of, you know, right, we're going to pull the walls down. We're going to kind of expose all of these issues and we're going to tackle them all head on. And the Commission as an organisation that focused on race and equality and racism, it was very easy because that's what its raison d'etre was. You know, that was all it was set up to do. So it was that was almost that was part of how it operated. When you work in different organisations, you know, the the work around equality is massively important, but it's not everything they were set up to do. So you do have to work with different stakeholders and different organisations. You know, in housing, there are 19 housing separate housing organisations that all do things differently. They're worth billions of pounds. You can't just go out into that sector and say, you must do this, this and this, because you don't have the levers. And it's very easy to be irrelevant in those conversations. So for me, transitioning from the commission into housing was a really rude awakening because what I was doing was being morally right, but not being effective, burning bridges, because what I was advocating for was the right thing to do. But I had no levers. I had no legal levers. The commission could do formal investigation. I could just hit you with a stick. In an environment where you don't have that stick, you need a different tactic. And I think that the outcomes that I've achieved subsequently are probably more impactful, but they've been more complex because they've had to work with different people. So I think that 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 lesson but you know when i retire you know i'll be straight back on the uh the top of my uh the top of my hill uh, uh yeah screaming for the for the walls to be pulled down but i can say with hand on heart that doing this in an authentic way gives me um an you know a, a lot of satisfaction so that's that was the penny drop moment it's quite a difficult one you know i found it personally really really challenging you know, I had a formula I thought worked, then I found that it didn't work, and I I ran the risk of just just becoming irrelevant in that organisation. So you know, I had a lot of people help me to navigate my emotions in that, and realise that it was the tactic, not the outcome or the means that was the issue. So I just had to maybe, you know, um, temper my temper, you know, my my approach in the right way um, without losing the sense of what I was trying to achieve. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Let's get back into today's episode. It's just like how you say that. It takes me back to you know, something I read way back around um, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. 
and part of the obviously there was a lot of objections in the black community particularly around some of the changes that they they made and some of the language and and nuances and one thing that Marley King said was if we need to be effective we can't have the same tirade over and over again we need to be able to adapt to still get us to where we want to get to but work in the in the realm of what we carry operating in and I think that's something that's easily lost sometimes that actually everything that we do is an evolution and you don't necessarily lose your end goal but there are different ways of being impactful you can't just apply the same thing over and over and over again in every single environment think it's going to work you have to be able to adapt to that environment and keep your authenticity and keep that long-term vision that you're trying to influence and impact yeah i i, I agree i think i don't think it's an either or i think there is a real temptation and you know it is it is seductive that you know you can go into a room of whatever audience and you can kind of give the rally and call you know we're not going to put up with this we see this every day this is a and you literally get your standing ovation and you will come out of there with people feeling really empowered and really passionate and then what and i think that in in too many in too many examples of that i've seen people who offer that but also another way of looking at solving the problem not you know get told that they're selling out or they're less committed or you know all of these negative things and i think actually it's important for you know for us to look at what is effective what has affected change look at other movements that have been effective what 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 is it that they've done um and i was going to ask you around hold your soul who enjoys a good book or a good film and i'm curious like what are your top three films and top three books i know they're gonna say i'm not particularly sophisticated but i love coming to america i just <laughs> I, I, I can i can act it i can do the voices the the full the full night so yeah i didn't like it i couldn't watch it it was a bit too um bit just a bit sanitized i loved the first one so i i did i did love that um god so many i mean i'm trying to think i did like i really loved schindler's list i did like that film i did i thought that was brilliant um i only watched it a few times but you know i'm not i'm not massive into loads and loads of movies but no i did watch that film and that was one that that was you know really resonated and i thought it was beautifully shot as well i thought the story the characters were great ralph fines was just awesome in in that film and um yeah i think the fact that we shot in black and white as well was was particularly powerful and books there's and this is where i, I think there's there's a there's a book called um bird song by sebastian forks which is a really good i mean it's I, as a as a young person i wasn't very very good at reading so I used to really struggle with, you know, standing up in class. So I never, I had a real issue with books. And then when I started going to night school, I became a sponge. So read, read quite a lot. So I, I thought that that book is good. It's a, it's a, it's a really beautifully written book. I think it's won a few awards as well. Um, but it's, it's taken during the war and it's not the sort of story I pick up, but I got recommended it. So 
I thought that was that was really good. There's a box that I, I really enjoy at the moment. Um, recently, it's um, it's it's a guy called Jonathan Height. I think he's a social psychologist or something, and it's called the Coddling of the American Mind, and it's controversially takes on the issue of kind of the, the the new generation of people and council culture and all of those things and you know covers things like you know microaggressions and you know it's a book that i don't agree with all of the um all of the arguments in it but it was really thought-provoking so i did i did enjoy that i did enjoy that book and then um as far as i mean there's so many things i'm looking behind me just stunned the ones that i yeah, I mean, I would I would say for fun, I I enjoyed. There's a book called Sapiens. It's quite well known, and it it's just super. It's super cool. I mean, for just 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 as a, a tube read, I picked it up and I finished it in about a week. It was just really really interesting. Talks about how kind of society has evolved from kind of people being hunter gatherers all the way to where we are now. And then there's a follow-up book called, um, I think it's called Homo Deus, which I think is translated as as God, God Man. And yeah, I, I think I'm sure I've probably screwed it up now. So someone who's better at Latin will say, "There, go, you idiot." But uh, but it talks about the future. So the whole thing about Sapiens was talking about getting to a point where you've got rid of war and disease and food is in abundance. And then the question is, what is next for the future? So it's about things like life extension and the pursuit of happiness as as being the, the the key driver because largely I know it's ironic because Ukraine's going on but largely those large wars that we saw kind of in the first part of the industrial revolution onwards have have been eradicated. Health has improved massively and food abundance and society has evolved hugely. So what is next? So those those are the kind of the three. The three ones that that stand out that I'd read again, definitely. Add that to my list, actually. I remember reading um, Mozilla's is definitely a good one that I've I've read with other two that you mentioned. I'm like, okay, I need to I need to expand expand my reading list. Yeah, and I'm trying to film. I've got my two films, so I think the other one I like documentaries more than films. To be honest, um, I really love um documentaries. So I would say, um, I like. There's there's one called Fire in Babylon, which is a wicked uh, documentary. It's about the uh, the 1980s West Indian team. Um, it's got a brilliant soundtrack to it. And growing up in Birmingham, that that team was just yeah they were they were the business. So Andy Roberts and you know all of those guys were just awesome. So that's a really good documentary. Uh, as is kind of when we were kings, the Muhammad Ali one, which I love Muhammad Ali. I absolutely he was one of my idols, but then I heard about the stuff that happened with George Foreman. George, not George Foreman, sorry, George no, Joe Frazier. Scratch that one, yeah, Joe Frazier more than Foreman. I thought, yeah, what he did to 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 Smoking Joe wasn't cool at all. And I know Ali's loved by everyone, and I loved him as you know, I've got books on him in the back. But when I found out what you know Joe Frazier offered to do, get him his belt back, provided money for his family all of that stuff and then to call him you know an uncle tom and it was just it's just not cool and i think muhammad you know recognized that 
at the end towards the end of his life but i don't think joe ever got over that even even to the to the very end and i think that was yeah that was a that was a, a, a def, definitely a bad um period but the the documentary when we were kings was wicked i mean it's got james brown in it it's got bb king it's got some amazing footage i mean ali just he, he looked like an absolute god in that and that was when he was older, you know, imagine getting him kind of in the mid sixties, he'd have been even more, but now it's a brilliant, brilliant documentary, great soundtrack and yeah, great message. Do you think that tainted his um his legacy? Because he he, he was learning, wasn't he? He was he was a young kid, very brash and the way he kinda of showed up was was wrong that he admitted it alive. I don't think he taints his legacy at all. I think, you know, Muhammad did some amazing things and, you know, it's like everything. You know, we are all flawed characters. You know, we all do some the capacity to do some great things, but it doesn't make us perfect. And I don't think any of us are. I just think for 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 people like Ali, they're they're you know, they're beyond reproach. There's nothing that's ever gonna undo all of the remarkable things that they did, not just for on a practical level, but also for people's mentality globally. I think you get these global s- superstars and he was he transcended boxing. And yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was incredible. Um, but I think there's also, there's some elements of, of everyone's life that, that probably none of us would only be poured over. None of us would cast the first stone. So, you know, I don't, I don't think he'd change his legacy at all, but it's just something that was unfortunate because, you know, Joe Frazier was, was a decent man, um, was very poor, came from a very poor background and, you know, to be, you know, to be labelled as some of the things he was labelled as. I know his promotion, but I think there's a line sometimes. And I think in those periods in history, shouldn't be calling him a gorilla. I don't think that's cool. Um, but that's, that's you know, it's easy for me to say in, in hindsight, not in the middle of all that. Are there role models that you've had over your career or you still have now that you've kind of looked up to that inspired you or pushed you forward? I mean, there's a couple. I mean, when I was first at the CRE, there was a guy called Andrew Housley who was a, a director and he'd worked in this space for a long time. So he was a massive inspiration because, you know, by the time I got to meet him, he'd been kind of working in this space for 30 odd years. So, you know, he'd never got fatigued. He was always had that fire in his belly. So he was really inspirational. Um, people like Paul Riddell. I mean, these names no one will have heard of, but they had massive impacts in the fight against racism and discrimination. Paul Riddell worked in London been a Jamaican guy super cool super bright super tenacious and I was just I just idolized him actually um if he ever hears this he'll never know I would never say that but I just I just thought the guy was just everything that I wanted to be um and he led the formal investigations of the police for the CRE um and yeah was just was brilliant so I think there are, there are people like that in my career, but I'm surrounded constantly by, you know, people like yourself, people linked to the BEO, people linked to the DAC at Sky, people I really admire. I think it's such... I don't know. I think whenever you're working in this space, it's really important to kind of not feel that you're on your own doing it. And what we don't do enough of is creating opportunities for like-minded people to come together and actually really talk you know i think it there's a lot of things that prevent us from doing that but that's almost the 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 kind of the rocket fuel that you know if you feel responsible for this area if you feel that you want to make a change 
it's really easy to feel though the rucksack is full of rocks and what you want to be is in a position where you feel that it's the rocket fuel there's a rocket pack on your back not a, a, rock, a rucksack full of rocks and i think sometimes you get that from being around people that inspire you and i think we can all point to those individuals what we don't do i don't think is bring enough of us together regularly enough to keep that 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 that's that fire burning this podcast is sponsored by mindset shift a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out not from the outside in we work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations we work directly with hr and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions on the line will help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. If that's something that you're interested in, if you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. It's a good point though. Interesting last time I listened to an interview with um Rachel Mallory in the US. And she was talking about as an incident that happened where um where the woman was, but the woman basically like something happened with her child. She went to the uh next woman's door and she got shot through the door and she got killed. And Jennifer Mallory and like 15 other like what's called activists and those in the political sphere just literally jumped on a call and had a conversation around this is what we're going to do and move forward and she was talking about how often they all meet and just connect and just talk in a very closed door sessions I remember thinking about that last night like that was so dope if we did something like that in, in the UK we just got voices together whether it's in a room on a Zoom call whatever it is and just had a conversation and just leaned into each other, learned from each other and really created that space. Because like you say, a lot of times it can be a heavy burden and it's not always easy. But to have that space and collective wisdom and collective nurturing, should I call it, would be, yeah, if you really got to be thinking about that, that would be really amazing, actually. Yeah, I think, you, I think the thing that's special about it is, like you said, that thing about collective wisdom. You know, there are people that, we're doing this a lot longer than us that, that, that you know, we've, we've talked about this before that you can see almost a playbook about how things end, you know, you know, you get an issue, you get a, a moment in history, everybody gets galvanized around it. Everyone focuses on it. Then other things come into the mix and then it becomes less of a priority. And you, you there have been these touch points throughout history, particularly in the UK and it's utilizing that kind of muscle memory of what has what people have done in the past and learning from the past. You know, it's one of the oldest sayings, isn't it? If you don't learn from the past, then you can't change your future. And I think there's a lot that we could do as a community to to bring in some of the the voices that have probably lost their their volume over the years and some of that may be that people are just genuinely fatigued and you know i've seen that which is a terrible shame when there have been great people that have just tapped out they're like you know what i can't be doing with this anymore 
can't be doing with the infighting, I can't be doing with the politics, I can't be doing... And that's a terrible shame that the journey has almost fatigued them and we've lost that 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 um that learning and that expertise and insight and I think we can do a little bit more to to bring people together to to actually I think curate that community. And I think when you look at the BEO, you know, there isn't in my view that no, I think if I was looking at any other community or the issue, there are people I would say, right, the, these are the prominent spokespeople for this area. I think for issues of racial inequity and discrimination, I don't think we've got we've got those those individuals. I think there are lots of really super capable, but there are lots of them. I think sometimes having a focal point for those 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 movements are are important. You know, we talked. You, know, you can talk about people like. You know, in America. I mean, it's very easy to talk in America because they're obviously profile. UK is, you know, the UK has its own issues. We don't need to appropriate the experience of people in America. We've got our own issues here. But I think finding those individuals who are in the UK, I think, is 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 really really important. And I think there's a lot of really good candidates, but they have to want to step forward. And when they step forward, everybody has to be in a position to support and protect them because they're going to be shaking a tree and they're going to be a lot of apples falling and we need to make sure that they've got the hard hat that will protect them on the journey. Shope, how about you? <laughs> don't, don't tell me you don't like apples. <laughs> I like apples. I like bananas. I like pears. Um, no, but I'm, I'm 100% aligned to it actually. Um, I think it's the conversation we had today and before we started this has really got me thinking around the fact that I think what is missing a lot of times is around unison. And when you have so many different, when you have a spread that's not focused, it's a lot harder to have impact. And actually being able to bring all that together in a very focused way will be really, really important. And it's be like, it'll be like a tip of the spear kind of impact and that would be absolutely amazing and as a part of it's like yeah but is that possible you've got egos you've got all that kind of stuff I'm like actually the reality is it is possible because we've seen it done time and time again and without even then again but the US is a good example if they do do that well and they can mobilize and they can come together and we need our own UK version because we do have our own issues we have our own things that are unique to us and being able to do this in a UK-centered kind of way as a collective group, as well as utilizing spaces like BO or or other people and bringing them together, hundred percent agree with you. Um, I guess it's a move. Maybe that's a conversation. Maybe that's a conversation to have. You know, to to say that you know, you talked about things like infighting and politics and that, well, we, 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 we acknowledge that those things inhibit the ability to kind of identify these kind of vanguard uh, individuals, but we've never really openly talked about it. So, you know, I, I, I believe passionately that if there is an individual or individuals that can be the, the kind of, as you said, the spearhead for this work, you know, they're going to experience people attacking the things that they say in the carry that's just 
for for any group you know that that's looking to move uh, rights forward that's just part of the course and that's why the issue of resilience is so important but i think the one thing that that is important is that when those challenges come that the rest of the community support and protect them and we've seen it with politicians we've seen it with people who are outspoken and you know maybe shape the tree to an extent that people don't like the first thing they go for is their character that they're you know they're you know they they crawled all over and i think that that's that you have to accept that but they also need to be protected because it's bloody lonely if you're going to be on if you're going to be you're going to be on the front of the ship sailing through the choppy waters you want to make sure if you get blown away that someone's going to grab you and hold you up and and i think that sometimes you know al sharpton talked about this he came to the uk and i went and saw him i think it was in hackney went to see him um but he talked a lot about stopping the 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 infighting um and the sniping you know nothing will be perfect you know the bdo is a new organization for example it can't possibly be perfect straight away but it's really important that an organization like, like that survives the choppy waters and actually goes and thrives and you know it doesn't have to be the only organization but you know there are lots of good community groups but there needs to be that focal point and you know i'm not an advocate i'm not involved I'm not on the PO board or but but I'm just looking objectively. You know, twenty years ago I could point to organizations that were brilliant around challenging systemic discrimination, racism, promoting community kind of dialogue and making better relations. There were lots of them and they just disappeared in, in twenty years because of either funding cuts or something else. So there are lots of high profile organizations so we need to create them and we need to support them and you know that requires everyone a little bit to drop their sword and say that i will support the movement even though i'm not going to be the face of it and you know in my 20 odd years of experience i've seen lots of people who cover themselves in the cloak of kind of uh, equality but only if they're going to be the face of it and i think that that is is one of the the ongoing challenges for all of the areas of, of this, this this in this space, not just uh, gender or disability or race or sexual orientation. It's just one of those uh, ongoing challenges, but something that I think we need to face into. Yeah, you wrap up. My last question to you would be: How do you define leadership? Oh, um, I think the standard answer is leadership is the is the. Yeah, I've been out against this common goal. Um, you know what? I it's it, you know I do love my quotes because I find them inspiring. I think there's there's one that that I really really do love, um, and it was by um, a guy called Norman Schwarzkopf, Stormen Norman. You know, he was a general in the first Gulf War, and he said a really famous quote, which is that leadership is a combination of strategy and character so that's leadership but he also said if you have to do without one of them get rid of strategy and i think that that issue of character is the most important quality that in my experience any leader has you know leadership isn't about seniority i think 
a leader has to inspire. I think most importantly, it's not about senior. I think it is about being able to inspire. And if you can't inspire me, why the hell am I going to follow you? And I can follow you in calm waters, but when it's force 10 and it's choppy and there's a mast that needs to be pulled up and I could get blown overboard, because you're senior, I'm going to go out on that deck just because you say the right things. I'm going to... The only people who get me there is people that will inspire me to put myself in a position that I'm not sure about. And I think that when you get challenging times, you see the character of leaders. And I've seen that consistently in all of my career, people who have faced in when it's been really difficult. Um, um, Michael Rapino at Live Nation is a perfect example. A business that was worth billions of dollars with COVID lost 98% of its revenue overnight overnight and everyone's wondering what's going to happen in the world i mean 98 percent of your revenue i mean you couldn't you couldn't make it up overnight and what he did was he got on a call every single week with all the employees across the business globally and faced into it told everyone it will be okay told everyone we don't know when we're going to come out of this but the business has got strong fundamentals kept people's spirits up by protecting the employees who were on the lowest salaries and was completely transparent but his ability to face into that when i know that there has to be there's no way i'd have been on that call every week and he did it every single week telling people where the business was even if there was no news he was always there front and center and I'm not a person that easily admires people around leadership, but that was probably the best example. It will stay with me because we were all in the same boat and it was amazing to watch how he faced into that. And I'm not saying in any way that he's perfect. I'm sure there's lots of character flaws and things that he's done, but that business did come through and actually is more profitable than it was before COVID. And it was the best example, probably up close, that I've seen leadership inspire, calm fears, and show the way forward, even in the most challenging times. So for me, that's probably the best example um, that, that that I've seen. So that would that would be my illustration of character coming through. Such a great way of looking at what leadership is. Well, a great example as well, actually, because like you said, it's been able to inspire and lead from the front and model the right behavior. And I can't imagine being to go for that. For you to mobilize in that in that way, but it's a piece of integrity of the person. And that's what always wins out day in, day out. But speaking about integrity and character, thank you very much for today. It's been inspirational, very insightful. But for me, I think more importantly, also very educational. Um and this is what I was talking about at the start where there are people who have been, like I say, we're doing this for 20 plus years. There's so much stuff that you know that people don't know, that they haven't seen, that they haven't understood. There's so many nuances and complexities involved in work that you do that it's so easy to be able to cast aspersions and just look at this is not changing. Like, no, there's there's a lot more stuff to this. But here are some of the ways that you've broken things down, the examples you've used, um, some of the models that you've been able to share. I know people are going to take away and learn so much from this as I already have. 
And this is why we need to hear your voice more often. It's why I thought we had to make this happen. So thank you very much for for doing this and, and stepping into the world of podcasting for the first time as well. Yeah, so hopefully we'll be career defining in the negative. Uh, no, no, I, I hope that, you know, I know some of the answers are quite long, but I hope that, um, yeah, it's given some, some valuable insight. But yeah, you've been very gentle with me. So uh, yeah, it's been a, a pleasurable experience and just hope that... Um, something that I've said there'll be something in there that lands with with someone out there I don't mean that there's been more than one thing trust me on that one but so the leadership see you all next week while you're still recovering from that amazing conversation let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out there was a number of different things that I weren't pleased about or was frustrated about. You know, being in the music industry is probably one of the hardest industries to be in. You know, you can be so close and so far. You, you, you know, you, you put everything on the line. You know, the risk is, is high. You know what I mean? So it's like managing emotions and managing feelings, but then still being a person as well. You know, having a relationship, having a child, I mean, you know, all these different kinds of things.